I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening and welcome to this latest live streamed conversation from the London Review Bookshop. I'm Sam Kinchin-Smith, the LRB's Head of Special Projects, and I'm here with novelist, essayist and LRB contributing editor, John Lanchester. Hello, John. Hi, Sam. To mark the publication of his latest book and first ever collection of short fiction, Reality and Other Stories a compulsive and at times genuinely unsettling set of tales in which familiar lives reliant on the digital devices and distractions we take for granted are twisted and upended when ghosts and other supernatural phenomena enter and take possession of these machines. On the subject of which, I should add that if anything goes wrong uh, with the live stream, it's not the fault of our producers or our internet provider, it must be a haunting by a malevolent spirit. Assuming we remain unvisited, you should be able to buy John's book from the shop via a link that will be posted in the comments and also ask questions in the Q&A section. We'll speak for 45 minutes or so and then I'll start putting those questions to John. John, I thought we could start with your epigraphs from Hamlet, David Foster Wallace and the more contemporary phenomenon of the British Conservative Party having more dead donors than living ones. This suggests timeless ghostly themes, which makes me want to ask... Do the ghosts here arrive mainly through digital portals because these things, mobile phones, audiobooks, below-the-line comments, reality TV, robots and selfie sticks, are simply the stuff of everyday life now? Or is there something in technology that is itself, in your eyes, a malevolent spirit? Well, I think the the point I was trying to make in the epigraphs, because the first one is this wonderful line from Hamlet. Uh, It's about the death of Caesar. The grave stood tenantless and the sheeted dead did squeak and gibber in the Roman streets. Uh, which is, uh, I mean, it's fantastically vivid. And it's a kind of classic idea of a ghost. It's like it's chains, it's kind of rattling, it's moving strangely. It's squeak and gibber is so good, <laughs> the unnaturalness of it. Mm. Um, and then there's an epigraph from David Foster Wallace about ghosts being just the voice in our, voices in our heads that we think are our voice, but they're actually not. And it's such a powerful and strange idea. And in a way, it's closer, to, I think, to... What, what would ghosts be like in the modern world? They, how would we perceive them? What would they do to us? And then the third thing is about these Tory party donations, which really struck me as an interesting way of thinking about ghosts and about the effect of presences from the past in the modern world. And maybe some of what we think of as tradition, you could think of as ghosts. And the old joke about tradition being votes for the dead, it's quite a striking one if you think what well, if they actually were votes for the dead and there's something genuinely uncanny I think about the idea that in 2018 the Tory party was being paid for by dead people I mean if that isn't an image about ghostliness you know what what is so I was I got very interested in that question about what what we talk about when we talk about ghosts when we talk about things that aren't there but are still having an impact, absences that are present. Mm. Is, I think I've been, it's been bothering me. I've been really, really wanting to write one of these stories about Zoom and about video calling because that touches on this thing about it sort of 
contact that's not contact. You're conversing with people who aren't there. And somehow, often if you're interacting on Zoom, and some of the people watching this may have the very same feeling, is it an, are you more conscious of the presence of the people who are talking? Or is the thing that's really consequential actually their absence? Mm. I mean, which, how do you weight it? What matters more? What has more impact? Um, I mean, there's this famous thing that everyone's finding that Zoom is exhausting. Mm. And I, I think that's linked to that thing about the absences. It's the, the, the kind of cues, the body language, the things that are not there. The things that are not there almost outweigh the things that are there. So that was the sort of set of things I was, that has been on my mind um, about technology. And I think, I suppose it's that sort of balance, that dialogue, that dance between what it gives us, what it takes away. Um, and I've written quite a lot about the external consequences of technology, Facebook, Google, yada, yada, um, which often focuses on sociological questions, economic questions, how we interact with each other. And I think there's a whole other side of, of about technology, about the kind of inner landscape, about you know, what, you know, if you're thinking about, say, Instagram, you could write about, again, the economics of it, which is, you know, still very interesting this company that had 13 employees that was bought for whatever it was i think 15 billion dollars or something you know was more valuable than kodak and you could fit them all in this room so all that's really interesting and yeah i think almost the most consequential thing about something like instagram is the effect on internally on how actually on how people perceive themselves relate to themselves and that that was really behind the stories this thing about you know the technology and the internal, and that led me towards sort of technology and the uncanny. Mm. I mean, the thing that uh, in, in your kind of LRB writing that um, I immediately thought of reading these stories was the, the line towards the end of your um, now famous essay about Facebook that we put a button at the bottom of that meant you could <laughs> uh, cancel your Facebook account as a result of reading it. But yeah, um, I thought that was a genius move, by the way. It'd be really interesting to know how many people did. Yeah, we should we should look at the analytics. But um, but there's that line where you say you're scared of Facebook. It's it's kind of lack of moral compass genuinely frightens you, and it made me wonder if um, obviously a lot of your nonfiction writing has sort of been about demystification of of um, of things that are difficult to understand. And it made me wonder if if the kind of last resort of writing about technology is to sort of remystify it and to say that there's there's something here that can't be understood that we should be afraid of um and that's possibly the best way to decide what to do next i i suppose i mean i think i didn't think of it in quite as clear cut a way as that um i i think there are kind of objective analytical cold light of day reasons for being scared of facebook and in fact actually i think those are more apparent now Mm. When I think, was that 26, 2017, that piece? I think, you know, it's, more, I mean, that, that view is more widespread now and that sense of the damage done to our polity, our democracy, our society, you know, I think, um, I don't think that's, it might be a minority view, but not minority view by much now, that sense of this monster being out of control mm. um, and kind of causing chaos and destruction i i think of this as, um, book as being a kind of more quieter and more internal thing you know um and there isn't much about social media in it mm. i think i'd you know still prefer to write about social media head on mm. because it's a subject that you know is sort of out there in the plain light of day i think i've always thought the um things that have written as you say both fiction and non-fiction and i think the Nonfiction often comes from being interested in something. There's sort of something out there that, oh, that, that's actually a good subject. It's interesting and it provokes, you know, curiosity. And there's quite often, you know, for me, I, I like the feeling of finding something out and I like the feeling of there being a story there. Those are the sort of ingredients to, to having a piece to write. Um, a chunk of reality out in the world that you can kind of find out about mm. and capture. Fiction slightly more elusive and more internal, and I, I find I end up writing fiction about things that I can't quite explain why I'm interested. Yeah, and and if you say what is it about X, 
the answer is often, I don't know. It's just, it's sort of on my mind. Mm. And I think what I've ended up feeling is that since it's impossible to guess what will actually work and be effective in a piece of fiction, no, you know, it's really hard to, I mean, I know like out, there are outright commercial writers who've managed it and I tip my hat off to them, but I think most people can't. You just don't know what's going to connect. You don't know. If you sat down in cold blood to write the thing that was most interesting to the largest number of people, you know, it's almost impossible to do. I think you have to just trust the thing the thing that bothers you, that you can't quite get out of your mind, that keeps coming back as a subject, that sort of, as it were, you know, you go to bed thinking about it and you wake up in the morning, it's still slightly in your mind and you can't quite explain why. Those are the things that, turn in, for me, have turned into novels and now have turned into stories. I can't quite explain, you know, I can tell you why I wrote about Facebook, but I can't quite explain why, you know, those trying to think of a way of doing it without giving away any spoilers in the stories. But some of the, some of the images in the stories just sort of got in my head, wouldn't quite go away, and ended up turning into fiction. And that's the way I think of the distinction, a sort of external thing, ooh, that's interesting, as opposed to it's like just something plucking at a jacket mm. that won't quite leave you alone. Haunted by them. <laughs> yeah, which is, I mean, so I've always thought it's a very interesting metaphor haunting because you know actually if there were I mean it's like the elephant in the room if there were an elephant in the room you'd be going you'd be panicking and freaking out oh my god there's an elephant you know quick what do we do who do you ring you know and actually if there were a thing rattling chains and over your shoulder going you know it wouldn't be like the metaphor of being haunted it would be like "Ah." Um, and it's more like it's just sort of like a slightly annoying thing that won't go away I mean in in... it's more like tinnitus (laughs) That's good. In the uh, in the stories, the thing one of those things that seems to kind of come up time and time again is um, parent-child relationships, and indeed, a lot of the sort of hauntings that occur um, happen to children or through kind of devices, items that belong or are traditionally associated with children. But the stories are very much told from the perspective of. Uh, parents actually I think they're all told from the perspective of parents and I'm wondering if the 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 kind of feelings that you're describing whether they could be described as straightforward fear or or something more abstract whether in in your sense of them they're very much tied up with being a parent and being worried about the way in which this thing that you perhaps consider yourself to be in some kind of control of within and without might be something that they're completely kind of possessed by. So really, you you mentioned this when we spoke earlier today, and I must admit it hadn't occurred to me that it, I mean, definitely is a thing in the stories. I wonder if there's, if children are often using ghost stories because you have, you have to have, um, there has to be a sense of jeopardy Mm. that comes from somewhere. And children are very effective because they are generating that partly because, you know, there's a sense of them being risk. And also, there's sometimes a sense that they won't know what's weird. Mm. Um, they, they won't know mm. what the supernatural component is. In fact, as you were speaking, I suddenly thought, because this is the thing about the way the ideas come slightly unprompted for ghost stories. It'd be quite interesting to have a ghost story narrated by a child where the child never realises it's a ghost story. I don't know, have, can you think of one like that? Well, I mean, there's an element of that in turning the screw, but it's but it's sort of more the first thing you described. It's the yeah. It's the, well, there, there, but there, it's really super children in peril, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, in, in fact, I don't think anyone's ever done that thing of the the thing that makes the. I mean, I think it's an extraordinary story. We could talk more about it. The way the the, I mean, there's the proper sense of terror <laughs> is about what happens to the children, and mm. the ch- the children are the ones that generate the sense of. Um, malignity mm. someone's threatening to harm children and James is very good on malignity mm. um, and that's actually a super interesting thing I think about Turn of the Screw is which has a strong claim I think to be the best ghost story ever written in English is that James said dismissed it as a fairy tale pure and simple <laughs> which is absolute bollocks mm. I defy anyone <laughs> to think that that's what the turn of the screw is. And I mm. defy anyone to think that that's what James really thought. And I think the reason he was so resistant to admitting what it is is because the, it's, a, it's about 
evil and the evil is supernatural. It's inexplicable and it's supernatural. And James didn't want to admit that he believed in that. And you read that story and it's pretty clear he did. Just before we came on air, we were talking about Hilary Mantel mm. and the force of her writing about ghosts being because she's seen them and she believes in them and it gives us sort of particular depth and resonance to it. And the way he writes about even in the tone of the crew, I think, shows that he did, in some sense, believe in human malignity that could go to this extra pitch of being supernatural. And in his other books, he never admits that because his books are full of evil, but it's just people being incredibly horrible. It doesn't quite explain where it comes from. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that actually the turn of the screw is a kind of key to James. And I think that mm. thing about children being in peril is sort of at, at the heart of it. I think, I mean, what I found very interesting about the the kind of predominance of the parental viewpoint um, was that it's sort of an inversion of, of the wall, which presumably you were sort of writing at the same time as these stories. And the the kind of episode in that novel that's sort of become famous is is um, the protagonist's sort of great explication of how his generation of, let's call them Generation Y or Millennials or whatever, can't forgive their parents' generation for the environmental catastrophe um, that sort of happened uh, on their watch. It seems to me that in some ways uh, the opposite is happening here because in some ways, the, the children, as you say, don't necessarily know what's happening on their watch, but the parents can sort of see it. Um, and so it's the parents who have to intervene as opposed to the children who have to fix the kind of parents' mess. I hadn't... I mean, that's a really interesting point. I hadn't seen it that clearly. I, I suppose an, another way of putting that is it arises fairly... Um, directly from the themes that the wall is about a catastrophe unfolding in the future where it's actually young people who have a more acute sense of it. And there's a funny intergenerational reverse. I mean, it's one of the things that happened when you, you saw um, you know, Greta Thunberg and then the climate strike in schools. And it was during the May government and May was basically saying, you know, go back and do your go back and revise for your geography GCSEs. And it was extraordinary because the children were the adults. The mm. children were the ones who were talking with a sense of context, a sense of consequence, a sense of, you know, the importance of this moment scrolling into the future and had perspective and context. And the adults were the ones who were sort of flailing and having tantrums. And th there was that really... Str and had the moral authority, crucially. You know, the children had the moral authority. Um, and I think with the, the technological thing, I think a possibility is that there is, um, you know, people who are old enough to remember life before the ubiquity of all this stuff do see it slightly differently. I definitely mm. see, you, you know, my children had never didn't have broadband. And, you know, the difference between that and growing up, um, you know, when I was a kid, there was, when I grew up abroad, there was black and white TV. There was two channels and it started at 6pm, you know, and you can't sort of, and talking about that in a way is sort of irrelevant to people from the younger generation. Mm. It seems so, it seems, it, the difference seems irrelevant. You know, the, the difference is so big, it doesn't, doesn't connect. But it does mean if you have that other perspective, I think it gives you a sense of, your sense of the dangers is increased, I think. It's funny because... So as I, it were, so in the walls of well, uh, but where the, the children's generation see the dangers and this is but where maybe yeah. it's the older generation who do. I just, I'm, I'm interested in the, the idea of being sort of within and without because that's sort of how, how I see my generation as well in that we were sort of... Well, I was kind of 14 when I got my first mobile phone. And do you, can you remember... I used to have a party trick when I was at university. I was born in 1962 and there was a weird party trick for people my age that you could do, that people a year older and a year younger did, couldn't get, which is the first time you saw a colour TV. Hmm. And that had, mm. and I, as I wonder if it's things, do you remember when modems used to do that? Yeah. And where's the cutoff, do you think? Because <laughs> I bet there are people not that much younger than you who don't. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I remember sort of Encarta Encyclopedia as a, as right. a sort of pre-internet yeah, yeah. Google. 
Right. But the thing, I mean, the thing for me that is is most conspicuous is that Facebook coincided with my first year of university. Right. From that year onwards, there are kind of photos of everything that happened to me. Right. Um, But I do, I, I, I was saying this the other day, I mean, to some extent, one of the reasons I think I got a job at the LRB was premised on the idea that I could sort of talk about technology both with people who yeah. are very interested in it and people who think they don't know anything about it. Yeah. Um, but then I, I sort of said this, and people of all these different generations said, actually, I think I'm of that generation. And I wonder if thinking you're of a bridging generation is something that's common to, to all generations. And that actually, um, perhaps mm. the only exception is the, is the kind of digital native of, of the present, um, for whom it feels kind of seamless but perhaps that's true you know that everyone is, everyone is in the middle between two different things because i've also noticed um you know my my children's generations 22 and 18 and they use different media you know and and it's it's quite a big generational marker mm. you know the 18 and 17 year olds i know they don't you know facebook is for their aunts mm. and uncles <laughs> it's completely over with a slightly older generation we're just at the tail end of it. And, mm. and now a lot of them have stopped using it. And the, and the, the younger kids, again, um, you know, their, their social media was WhatsApp, Snapchat, TikTok. Mm. You know, and that's quite a, a four-year gap. is quite small, you'd have thought, to have like a profound, um, that profound a shift. And so I think that thing of, um, you know, if I was in the tech business, one of the things would worry me was just that thing about, fa- you know, the fashion changing, mm. which is Zuckerberg. To be fair, was alert, you know. That's why he bought Instagram oh, and WhatsApp because yeah. he knew that these this micro generational stuff was happening. Mm. So I think we'll, you know, in the future we'll all be in the middle, um, you know, just with that. <laughs> there's someone behind and someone not. Yeah, after. I suppose the question is interesting whether whether that process ever stops. But but I think you're probably right. I mean, there's that thing. One of the things again for my generation was when you'd go round to older relatives' houses, the the the, the VCR would always be someone would have accidentally turned it off or they'd have pressed the wrong button. So the timer would always be blinking zero, <laughs> zero, 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 like every single time <laughs> you go around to the house and, the, and you know, whoever it was, if they were more than 10 years older than you, the timer was always bust. That's true of devices all over the world, though, isn't it? Blinking midnight at all, at all hours. I can't. I've, I have just enough OCD. I can't do that. I, just, <laughs> I can't go to bed. I have to. And if there's a power cut or something, I go, you have to go, go down and I have to go and just That's reset really the things. The other, I mean, the other comparison with the wall that I thought um, was interesting is that the... I mean, certainly that, that book's been read, perhaps oversimplistically, as, as a kind of Orwellian allegory. Mm-hmm. And it seems that, that that kind of model can apply to about half of these stories. That there is, in half of them, there's a kind of, that it seems like there's a kind of moral imperative behind them. The, maybe the most obvious example being the, the sort of, I think I can say this without necessarily giving away the story, the haunted selfie stick that induces anorexia. Um, but half of them seem more kind of mischievous and seem to be inspired by a more let's say, Roald Dahlian kind of comeuppance. I wonder if that kind of distinction was something you were aware of when you were writing. No, I mean, I think there's always, um, there's an element of play in all of them, even the idea that, you know, as it were, Instagram is bad for you. And by the way, selfie sticks can be haunted mm. too. You know, um, I'm relatively saying, I think Instagram is pretty bad for people on the whole. But I think statistically, you're unlikely to be, <laughs> actually haunted by a selfie stick. Mm. You know? um, and uh, I think one of the things about the ghost story is that there's... Um, we, and I, I accept ghost story is not exactly the right term, but, you know, it's close enough. That, that it, it sets up several expectations. One of them is there's a kind of intimacy about it. A ghost story is something, mm. like even right from childhood, that somebody tells you, as we sit down, let me tell you a story. And and there's a sort of implied frame around it. And it may, maybe I felt this particularly because the first one I read, I read to friends and, and staying with them. And that sense of connection and interpersonal thing is, for me, it's there in all of them slightly. There's that, that feeling of a kind of intimacy, maybe connected with the fact that, you know, I read it to be read. And in some sense, that's still in my head in the book. And the, the frame also says that 
this will be, it's kind of familiar because I'm telling you a scary story. We've all been told scary stories. Um, but also, it's also going to take you somewhere you aren't quite expecting. So as it were, start somewhere you know, mm. ends up somewhere you don't know. And even though you know that, it will still slightly surprise you. In a way, that's the card trick. Mm. You know what's coming, but mm-hmm. you'll still be slightly surprised. And it's up to you whether or not you take it at face value. Mm-hmm. So they're not exactly in inverted commas. They're not exactly ironic or unfelt. But you, it, you, if you want to take them that way, you can. You know, I, I think that sort of slight sense of... Um, and in that sense, you were talking before we came on, I know you were talking about Henry Mantel. I think in that sense, I think this is slightly the opposite of what she does with ghosts. Because that thing is a deeply felt personal thing about mm. it. Whereas I think, for me, mm. it, it's a, an, a really interesting set of tools and metaphors. And, I've, and I'm, as well, you're free to believe in them if you believe in them. And at the same time, you can, you can also see them as having inverted commas around them. Mm. Well, on the subject of inverted commas, maybe it would be a good moment to read from um, Coffin Liquor, which has a very distinctive voice. Um, thank you, yeah, because well, the, the stories are all in different voices, and that was one of the things. And this is a, um, a sort of dried-up economics academic at a conference uh, in an unnamed uh, Eastern European city. He's, and he's got really annoyed by all the humanities people talking what he thinks is nonsense in the conference, and he's gone for a walk. An old woman in a shawl sat on a chair by the entrance to the graveyard. She held out a small woven basket, clearly demanding money. A sign advertised the cost of admission. I handed over the trivial sum and in return took an informational leaflet. I skimmed it as I crossed the graveyard and began looking around the church. Some of it I already knew. The church had strong historic associations with a monstrous former feudal overlord of the town. The Count had been a famous torturer whose favourite practice was to exlinguate his victims, this being the leaflet's term for cutting out tongues, a neologism, I suspect. Then, partially dismember them, then bury them alive. In time... The townspeople had risen up against him and he had been subjected to his own favourite treatment. After death, he took his revenge through vampirism. He and a large number of his victims were buried in the graveyard. It goes without saying that I'm sceptical. I'm familiar with the scientific explanation of this and similar narratives. A rash of deaths, their real cause, invariably viral or bacterial, takes place. Causes are sought and fought in the, found in the arenas of legend and superstition and dream. A panic begins. Since the living are victims, the perpetrators must be found among the dead. Exhumations occur. Some bodies are found to have characteristics indicating post-mortem life. For instance, hair or fingernails that appear to have grown. In other cases, the liquefaction of improperly preserved corpses leads to the creation of the substance known as coffin liquor. As a result, in some crypts, coffins appear to have moved or burst. Supernatural phenomena are credited as the cause. Fear and superstition triumph over science and myths are born kind of makes one wonder about QAnon and COVID-19. Well, we're getting an education in how myths and fantasies and and untruths are born. I think um, the kind of conscious exploitation of the new mechanisms for spreading untruths is a slightly different thing from, you know, before you have the germ theory of disease, in a way, where do you look for an explanation? And uh, there's a kind of innocence to the historic mm. accounts of you know, illness and plague and stuff like that. I mean, they're often deluded and wrong, have terrible consequences, but you can see, you can see the why. Whereas some of the, the modern sense of sort of um, 
I suppose maybe another way of putting it is post-truth is a much darker thing than pre-truth. Mm. I think that's true. With, with your sort of arch-rationalist academic, he's one of, I think, three academics who are your protagonists. Hang on, let me and think. probably one of maybe four pedants, or, or maybe five. Um, which is obviously a kind of, it's a trope of ghost stories um, that you find in sort of M.R. James and H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. Um, but it seems like they're also somewhat in your sights, um, the, the, the people who enter a situation with a sort of fixed story in their heads. I think he's the only one who is, uh, in a sense, a bad... Well, he's not exactly a baddie, but his sort of... His delusions about his own rationality yeah. are kind of central to the story. Uh, it does... I mean, M.R. James is, for me, the great genius of, of that trope, that character, that narrative arc, that clash between someone who thinks he knows everything mm. and a world where the explanations don't don't work, don't fit. I think it is, you could say, maybe it's slightly implicit in the form though because you have, it's about a confrontation between the explainable and the inexplicable or the impulse to explain and things which can't be explained. That's kind of in the tension of the story because if you had someone who immediately believed Mm-hmm. that everything was a supernatural phenomenon and thought that accounted for it. In a way, again, that, you know, talking about the frame of the ghost story, that doesn't work. Something weird happened, oh, it's a ghost. <laughs> you know, and uh, the end. Well, that's yeah. kind of Hilary Mantel. <laughs> yeah, that's true. She is sort of, she's, she's quite blunt about it. But, you know, that, that sort of um, friction or that journey mm. between someone who really doesn't want to, someone who really doesn't want to believe being, I think there's a great... Um, interest and drama and a thing to connect with in that thing about being faced with things that you want not to believe Mm. and having to admit they're true. I think that's one of the secret narrative hooks about the ghost story Um, and one of the reasons we identify often with the protagonists. Mm. You know, um, they they are... And it's in a way, maybe it's a little bit like that it mirrors the way we suspend disbelief when we give into a, a story that you kind of part part of you doesn't and then you go along with it and there's something about that I don't want to I don't want it to be to be I don't want to be oh yes it must be a ghost there's that wonderful line in um I think it's the the one about the barrister where she says I don't want to see something that I know not to be true yeah so I borrowed directly from someone I knew actually who there was a particular building he wouldn't walk through at night because he didn't want it really say where he didn't want to see something that was impossible mm. and um that's that remark was made like i don't know 40 years ago and it sort of really stayed in my head as a kind of account of that feeling of you know i know it's fine but if it weren't fine mm. that'd be so maybe i won't you know maybe I won't peer around the corner. You know, maybe well, I won't see... And we yeah. all have that from childhood, you know, cupboard monsters. You don't want, you know... You kind of know the cupboard monster's not there, but if you were to check and the cupboard monster were there, so it's better just to pull the blanket over your head. But these, these protagonists aren't people who make the terrible decision that you um, find yourselves sort of yelling at during horror films where they um, decide to step outside of the cabin yeah. with only a candle... They 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 can't um, they can't avoid what happens to them. Um, yeah, but I suppose that, that that kind of is the same point. I think horror. I mean, I haven't really thought about horror. I think the dynamic is slightly different mm. in horror. I think because you have a thing about you know ghosts are often there's a thing about inexplicability and the thing about things that shouldn't be present but are. Whereas horror has that thing about the es- escalates and escalates and escalates. And I think there's kind of, um, if you were draw, sort of drawing that thing, you draw shapes of stories. I haven't really thought it through, but I think the shape of horror stories is rather different. Mm. It's like, gets worse. And you think that's bad. Oh, no, no, it's got, it's got much worse. Mm. No, 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 wait. This is the point where it really, you know, it does that thing of... Then often there's redemption at the end, whereas maybe the ghost story has the opposite. Yes, I think that's right. I think um, horror films usually have a thing about the monster, you know, the evil being really clear, 
And in a funny way, once you get that moment of clarity, it's like the old thing about, you know, never see the monster. Mm. Once you've seen the monster, either you kill the monster or the monster wins, but it's kind of clear. Mm. Whereas you don't, the ghost stories, I think you're right, there is a thing about ambivalence and ambiguity and open questions. In terms of, I mean, the shapes of these stories, um, the the collection has this great title, Reality and Other Stories. Um, But it seems to me that unusually... Um, the the hauntings happen quite late. And actually, um, for 80% of the time, you're just describing reality um, or perhaps the the unreality of reality. And it, it makes me wonder whether, in a strange way, the, the um, supernatural dimension is not an afterthought, but um, but just the means to, to really explore the first... Kind of 80%. Well, it was also a thing about I wanted them to be rereadable. Yeah. And that I think they read differently a second time because there, there are kind of cues and clues. Mm. Um, you have to watch it with Ghost Stream because the, the kind of revelation of the supernatural, if that's what it is, component, I think it, I suppose my view about that is the touch wants to be as light as possible before it delivers its punch. Mm. Partly because of that thing about the expectation in the frame, you know. Once you, once you know, as well, once you know, you know. Um, and I'm, I suppose, I'm interested in that thing I talked about—that dialogue of resistance and admitting it. Uh, but it's a fact. But I, I also wanted to, you know, because it's phones play a role in lots of the stories. So there had to be quite a lot about, you know, the texture of modern life in general. I was quite interested in that and getting as much. Mm quotidian reality in it you know partly I suppose because the spooky or weird things are I I tend to think they're realer if the other if the rest of the setting is real too here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I think I mean the 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 subtlety is um feels sort of conspicuous because of the circumstances in which we find ourselves which are so kind of extreme but which you obviously weren't aware of when you were writing these stories um the thing that that I've thought about a lot and which kind of coincides with the way Descartes' demon rears its head in one of the stories um, the kind of idea that we're living in a computer simulation. The, the kind of version of that narrative that I've always liked is actually we're living in a computer simulation that's going wrong. And that's the only way to possibly account for things ranging from, you know, Trump winning the presidency to Leicester City winning the Premier League to a kind of global pandemic in which we can't sort of comprehend things um, that are inevitable but still come as come a sort of surprise. Um, I mean, do you feel like the <laughs> the place of subtlety um, that that is the kind of short story writer's art has almost been steamrolled by reality again? Well, I think there, you know, it's Philip Roth made the point. It's not a new observation. This thing about you know, it's impossible for fiction to keep up. I think Roth was saying that in the mm. late sixties, <laughs> early seventies. You know that. In terms of sort of, you, you can't outdo contemporary reality for outlandish things happening. 
And if you're, you know, if, if you're asking whether this is the ideal moment to publish a book of, you know, quiet, spooky tales, short stories, probably not the ideal moment. No, in the middle of, you know, once in a century global pandemic. Mm. Um, I, I do think that a lot of people have that feeling that, you know, as, I can't remember who whose joke it is, that they wish the lizards would just reset the simulacrum to 2016, you know, mm. that, okay, this is the darkest timeline, let's all wake up, you know, let's all wake up telling stories about David Cameron and the pig, you know, those were happy times. <laughs> um, um, but I think there's a kind of, in that um, story about, which slightly turns on the idea of, you know, if the world were a simulacrum, then what? It's one of the things they talk about in it. And the idea of a malignity behind it. But someone said to me the other day that actually there is a malignity behind social media. And it's, it is engineered to be addictive. And, you know, there's a whole set of things that they did deliberately um, about frictionless behaviour, about just clicks that don't resist you about intermittent rewards, which are famously mm. deranging, and <laughs> repeatedly proved that people completely completely lose it when you see reward them sometimes and hold, hold it back. And when it's done on um, experimental animals and rats and things, they go mad, they can't cope with it. And our social media is completely designed around that. And dopamine hits from things like likes. All those are intentional pieces of engineering mm. designed to capture and manipulate our attention for profit. And it was, I was to know, I was struck by a person saying that, that actually the idea of some of the terrible things that have happened in the world having a kind of malign intelligence behind them, in a weird way, it's, it's truer of this moment than it arguably ever has been. Mm. Some questions have come in um, that kind of tie in with this. So I'll, I'll ask a couple of questions about social media together. Um, from Helen Power, do you think social media will develop political and legal institutions to underpin online democracy? Well, it's a good question, Helen. I think it's more likely to be the other way around. I think it's more likely that regulations will be imposed on them. I think that I, my hunch, maybe or my hunch or my hope, one of those H words, <laughs> is is that it'll be a because this stuff is so new and so, you know, we haven't really developed mechanisms to cope with it. And I think this is a, a COVID-era analogy, but that maybe what we need are both medicines and an immune system, and the medicines in terms of um, legal frameworks that give social media more of the responsibility of publishers. Every other form of publishing in the world, the publisher carries some responsibility for the content. And I'd have thought that's the likely direction of travel in terms of the legislative framework. And of course, social media companies immediately panicking and yelling and saying, but that breaks our whole business model, to which the answer is, duh. <laughs> yeah, it does. Mm. And the business model is spreading toxicity, especially as untrue and inflammatory content is stickier, gets more attention. I and mean, that's the thing that's broken. The, the bigger the lie, the more toxic the falsehood the more provocative, the more outrageous, the more inflammatory, the better it works for them. That's obviously very destructive. So I think we're going to move in the direction of regulatory framework that addresses it. That's, as it were, the medicine. And the immune system, the immune response, which is the other part of it, is in a way to do with us. It's more on us to be, to learn to be more sceptical, to learn to not just immediately swallow what we're told. I think that can probably involve deliberate teaching. I think it will become a, a school subject and I think it will be a kind of seen as increasing a sort of, it's a bit like wearing a mask, you know, that you need protection mm. against, against untruth, against these, you know, viral, again, falsehoods. And I think the idea that it's on us to use our scepticism properly and, and to be attentive to ways our credulity can be manipulated. I think, I think that'll be part of it too. So as I say, these two things, the medicine in terms of the regulatory framework and the immune response in terms of how we process this stuff. There was a, a really extraordinary um, quote in a Financial Times article I, re I read yesterday um, talking about the amount of money that certain individuals like 
Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos have made during the pandemic um, was, uh, <laughs> I think it was a statistic that, um, that Jeff Bezos could give every Amazon employee $100,000 um, and he would still have made money. Um, yeah, he still have more money than he had at the beginning. I saw that, yeah. I think, 100, I think it, was, it was it had a remarkable number of employees. As yeah, well. it was, it was something exactly. like 96,000 employees. But the, Give them $106,000 each and he still have more money than he had at the beginning. The, the, the thing that this, um, this article was saying was it, it was, it was a guy who I think represents kind of like a, a sort of CBI, but for billionaires. And he was saying they're really worried. The billionaires are worried yeah. because it's too blatant now. Yeah. It's kind of, it's got to a point where it seems unthinkable that people won't, um, you know, if not have a kind of revolutionary moment, will at least not agree to a kind of democratic settlement in which this kind of inequality is possible. But that seems, that seems kind of naive to me to think that, that, that somehow a larger number makes that more conspicuous, that somehow the largeness of a number means that it changes the mindset. I feel like the, the, the kind of small-scale, the dopamine yeah. kind of version is too strong, regardless of the numbers, particularly when the numbers are meaningless. Like, when you get into trillions of dollars, what, what does it matter? Yeah. I think, I mean, the, you know, um, the idea that it's been a winner-takes-all system is hardly new. I think the winner-takes-all thing has just been hugely exacerbated by the economic trends we've had since neoliberalism became the dominant orthodoxy in about 1980, and then hugely exacerbated by digitalization, globalization, the internet, and then exacerbated again by the pandemic, mm. which has, you know, prioritized particular sorts of business. And we, I saw a very interesting um, metaphor for it today. I can't remember whose it was. Uh, someone in America talking about a K-shaped, you know, always di- which letter do you want your recovery to be? Right. You know, V, U, L, W, all that. A K-shaped recovery. So it goes, goes straight down and then some people go oh, up right, like yeah. a rocket and some people That's are completely screwed. And the, the, um, basically Wall Street's up, you know, finance, digital businesses, um, Freeman Capital, all that. And, um, you know, shops and retail and restaurants and bars are completely finished. And I, I think there's... Do people just take that on the chin and say, oh, yeah, fine, you know, thus, twas ever thus. And, you know, God, if only we had the vote. Mm. Or do they start taking action? And I thought that, you know, I've long thought that there would be some form of populist backlash to it. Said so in print when I wrote How to Speak Money, that, you know, something's got to give. And I didn't realise it was going to come from the right, that mm. it would be a populist thing from the right. And surely at some point, surely at some point, you're bound, there must, you'd have thought by the reversion to the mean, be a pushback from, from the left, from social democracy, from, from actually from common sense, saying that it, it, why in a democratic system would you have a system in which most people lose out? Why is it the democratic logical outcome to have a system where most people are fucked. That's not the same thing as having a specific plan, but that feeling, that intuition, that sense that, you know, we can't leave it like this and we're, and we're not going to take it as, as if it was written on a stone tablet as the law for just how society and economics is supposed to work. I mean, that moment is definitely overdue. Mm. Something that we were talking about um, again before was the fact that you're currently working on it a TV adaptation of The Wall. And I was wondering if, almost in a kind of Brechtian sense of, of sort of epic theatre, whether because of these responsibilities, you feel like you're more minded to write within, um, I don't want to say mainstream, but potentially larger audience reaching formats. Well, in that, in the in case of The Wall, I think I did, you know, I, it has a particular purpose behind it, mm. it's, uh, to, which is uh, in a, simply put, to be wrong. You know, I want that future Mm. I imagine to not happen. And uh, if there were the opportunity to address that message to a bigger audience, you know, I I kind of feel I ethically can't not try and do it um, since it's the whole point of the project in the first place is to try and add impact to that. And there's, I think there's a particular thing in respect of climate change. I think because it's such, you know, 
it's all-encompassing, it's global, it's permanent, it's catastrophic, you know, planetary in scale. It's actually difficult to get your head around and the simplest thing is just to not think about it. To, you know, I think, I find, personally, I find climate denial very easy to understand. Mm. Um, You know, why why wouldn't you deny Mm. it um, for as long as you could? And I think that one of this, you know, and I think... um, there's this thing La Rochefoucauld, French Afro, said that death like the sun cannot be looked at directly. And I think climate change is a bit like that. It's so colossal, so you sort of can't look at it. And so part of the point of the project of writing it was to give it, to make a version of it that you, to look at. Mm. Well, look, that's what it, that's, that's the thing we're talking about. That's the future we're talking about. Um, and, you know, it's on the thread with that that I wanted to, and, you know, I will take the opportunities I can to communicate that that message. It doesn't apply. There's lots of other things that, you know, I don't feel the need to be in the soapbox about, but that one I do. It sort of reminds me of the, um, this, well, SF, but not to be tied to that writer, China Mieville talks about the fact that you need science fiction in order to be able to imagine transformative political change. I yeah. suppose that's the kind of inverse of that, but it sort of says, you know, that's another sum that, can't really be looked at or can't I, necessarily be envisaged. I deeply, I mean, I really like training over. I think it's great. And I, I deeply agree with that. I think it's one of the things where people talk about dystopia, utopia. Um, I think sometimes it's easy to miss the point, which is that the alternative to, if you can't have dystopian or utopian versions, you're saying that this is it. We have to live with mm. this version. What Mark Fisher, the great cultural critic mm. called capitalist realism mm. that is implicit in quite a lot of fiction that this is the way the world is and there's nothing you can do about it that's why ultimately there can be something slightly depressing about realist fiction it's sort of as it was seamless with the idea that you know this economic order just is the way it is and nothing's going to change and these are the only kinds of books you can write and the thing about imagining other sorts of world even if those worlds are quite dark is implicitly optimistic because it says the world doesn't have to be the way that it is. So all dystopias and utopias, however black they are, have that optimistic energy behind them because they're saying that the world doesn't have to be as it is, which mm. is a different way of saying what mm-hmm. China Mieville is saying. But I, I, I deeply believe that, that there's a kind of utopian and fantastic fiction. I think it's why it's increasingly important to... M- marginalised and minority communities mm. because it's saying the world doesn't have to be like this. Mm. I think we've got time for a couple more questions. This is sort of going backwards, but it's such a good question that I have to ask it. Sarah B asks, um, do you think everyone has a unique experience of social media because of the algorithms? Probably almost certainly yes. And is that what really haunts us? The fact that every that there is no shared experience? I think it's a super interesting point. I think one of the things that it has broken is that thing about um, the notion of the agora, you know, the public space that we live in where, where Greek democracy was transacted. The whole point about it was it's in this sort of forum. And I think, the, oh, you know, there's a lot of bad things you can say about how media, about old media, pretty much all of it true. Um, but there was a thing about it providing a kind of agora of the official topics that were being argued about. And to a fault, obviously, it set the limits of debate and things that weren't within that context. Things outside the agora were ignored and you had a kind of, you know, there are these sociological diagrams about, you know, the discussed and the undiscussed. Mm. And the undiscussed was very um, consequential in, in that thing. But if you remove it, you do have a, a sense of, Everyone yelling into the void, everyone looking at their own reflection, and no collective anything, really. And I, I do think it's, to use Sarah's term, haunting. I do think there's something, you know, I, th- I think it's really striking that one of the things you have along with this thing that's designed to connect us or professes it's all about connection, is you have an absolute epidemic of loneliness mm. and isolation and cut-offness. And I don't think that's accidental. I think because every, you know, the algorithm is serving you your own personal version of reality. Well, of course that's lonely. And loneliness is the, is the context for lots of ghost stories. Yeah, it is. And I suppose 
Well, if you're uh, we're in a room full of people and you're, you know, you, where's, as, where's the space for the ghost is one way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is about sort of isolated consciousness. Um, just time for one last question, which is um, from Tom Wooten, uh, who wants to bring it back to the writing um, and asks, um, perhaps specifically vis-a-vis the fact you're writing short stories, um, what's your draft revision and editing process, um, perhaps as distinct from how you write novels? Um, the, it, thanks for asking that, Tom. I, it was more fun in the sense of pure pleasure than writing novels because novels are a bigger bet. You go out on more of a limb. And my experience of writing novels is I always end up hating it. I'm about halfway through, I start hating it. <laughs> And then you have to kind of manage your emotions while you're finishing. You get these brutal ups and downs. Um, and and you're, my, I've, I've always been certain that I wrote the wrong book, you know, of the different competing I had. The competing ideas I had, I picked the, the dud. And I've got another two years to go, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and every other idea I've ever had was infinitely better than this incredibly shit idea to which I'm now committed because <laughs> I've been doing it too long. That happens every time. But with short stories, you don't have that because they're, so there is that initial thing that they're just they were fun to write in an uncomplicated way, whereas the novels are it's more complicated. I think I um the first couple I wrote slightly quicker than I normally do. And then after that, the I'd say the the I'd say the process is very similar, draft revision editing. Um maybe the the main thing that was different was I, I find I, I sit because novels take longer to write. I sit with the idea for longer because I want to be sure it's the right book because I know I'm going to hate it halfway through. So I spend as much time as I can just thinking, no, actually, I have, this is the one I have to do, and trying to work out big structural things in the book so I don't get too lost. The short stories were more like they came more unprompted. You know, they came as it were. The idea would come quite quickly. Like the idea of coffin liquor basically came from hearing that phrase. I was on a t- tour of the Garden Museum like near Lambeth Palace. And the curator showing us around talked, and that thing about coffin liquor is true. And they, when they were moving coffin rounds in the vault, some of them looked like they burst open because there's liquefaction thing. And as soon as I heard the phrase coffin liquor, I'm thinking, oh, I've got to use that. That's too good. Can't leave that. Wasn't there a Victorian craze for drinking it? Oh, you've just made that up. <laughs> uh, I think it's a, there's a there's a castle called Farley Hungerford Castle what? where <laughs> where it became a kind of you know almost like a sort of drinking game. You would you would there would be a there would be a liquid inside sarcophagi oh. that <laughs> that Victorian bros would kind oh of my God. dare one another to 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 do a shot of. See, I thought the idea of drinking binges was bad <laughs> enough, but no, no, I'd never heard that. That's terrible. Um, Anyway, so they'd come like in this sort of slightly unprompted way. And it was a bit, it was, the thing it was most like was when I was a teenager, like most teenagers, I wrote very, very bad, very bad poetry. Mercifully all lost now. Mm. Um, but I remember from that, that poems would, you couldn't sort of sit down to write a poem, it would come to you. And these were like that. The, the, the thing, that, that process of sitting with the idea for a novel for a long time uh, didn't really happen. It was more kind of, you know, like the haunted selfie stick, that really the whole thing is just that given thing. And then writing it was the, well, how would it work and unfolding it? Um, but the actual process, no, I'd say um, very similar. Except actually, one other, so they were more fun, they came more unprompted. And at the beginning, the first few I had in my head, the sense of an au- delivering it to an audience. And there was something, I, I can't quite explain about that. So that somehow fed into it. This thing about the I suppose because there, there's an implied connection with an audience in it. I think it's that thing I was talking about about a ghost story having a frame, and that was you know that's slightly different from a novel, which I see more as like a and I don't think about the audience when I'm writing. I try to think of it as like a, an object I'm trying to make that fits together and works in a particular way and has a kind of external existence of its own. And this was more like. Having a, a, having a person in mind to tell it to. Wonderful. Fun to write, fun to read, <laughs> buy the book. Um, and I guess the only way to end the event is to say, close your laptop, turn off your phone. <laughs> Try to not be haunted this evening. 
Um, thanks very much, John. Thanks very much, Sam. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.